Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm joined by Dr. Carol Hooven. She is co-director of undergraduate studies and lecturer in human evolutionary biology at Harvard University. And today we're going to talk about her new book, T, The Story of Testosterone, the Hormone that Dominates and Divides Us. So, Carol, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's perhaps start with some basics. What are the kinds of physiological processes testosterone participates in? So that's a good question, a really good place to start. Just basically, what does testosterone do for us? So it's a reproductive hormone, and it's present in both sexes. And being a reproductive hormone, its main function is to help animals reproduce, primarily male animals who um, have testes, and testes produce much higher levels of testosterone than ovaries. And overall, uh, testosterone acts on the body, but also in the brain to shape behavior to promote male reproductive success. And so its effects depend on the species and what kinds of physical and behavioral traits will promote reproductive success in a given species. So uh, in humans, and sorry, I'm just gonna back up a little bit. And so one of the main things that it does, just like estrogen and progesterone, which are at higher levels in females, is it helps to convert energy into offspring. So that's obviously the purpose of all of our lives, very basically from an evolutionary perspective. And hormones um, sort of tell the body in a given environment and in interaction with the environment, how to, first of all, to motivate individuals to get energy and then to spend that energy in ways that maximize reproduction. So there's males and females have different uh, reproductive needs and um, there are different strategies, behavioral and physical, that will maximize, tend to, on average, just put on average before like every single sentence I say, basically, throughout this interview. So uh, one of the things testosterone does for men, obviously, for, or for males, is to promote sperm production. So males need a way to get their DNA into subsequent generations and sperm carry the genes and that's the way to do that. And without testosterone, you're not gonna make any sperm. So testosterone helps to coordinate the development of the male reproductive structures starting in utero, very early in development. It promotes the, so the very early development of those structures, the maturation of those structures in puberty, and then the maintenance of those structures. But along with the uh, reproductive physiology, testosterone shapes the brain and the secondary sex characteristics. So the primary sex characteristics are those reproductive structures that are present at birth and then secondary reproductive uh, traits or secondary sex characteristics are the ones that emerge at puberty that allow us to sort of easily differentiate uh, males from females. And so testosterone is responsible for the development and maintenance of those characteristics like increased muscle mass and what you have all over your face, which females tend not to have, which is uh, facial, facial hair. That's a test characteristic that testosterone uh, promotes, larger body size, stronger bones. Uh, those are all 
basically products of testosterone in coordination with uh, other hormones, obviously, and aspects of our physiology. And then also starting in utero, testosterone shapes the brain uh, in various ways so that those structures can be used to promote reproductive success. It doesn't do any good to have sperm if you have no motivation to get those sperm into a, a female animal and potentially fight for the right to do that. So that is primarily what testosterone is doing uh, in the male body, really. And um, we can talk about females a little bit later. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I think there's another couple of concepts coming from endocrinology that it's important for us to talk about here. So hormones have both organizational and activational effects, right? And testosterone is one of those hormones that has both, I mean, both in during intrauterine life while trying to uh, contribute to how the body gets organized and sexually differentiated, but also throughout life in uh, influencing different kinds of behavior. Right. That's right. So there's kind of a, a simple way to think about it and then a more nuanced way to think about the organizational um, activational paradigm. And that is very well established uh, across animals, particularly mammals. There's a lot of really good evidence that testosterone works at in two different ways at two different times. One, like you said, is we'll just say perinatally. So because it, it depends on the species and even in humans now, we're understanding that there are some important effects of testosterone that take place, particularly in males shortly after birth. And that's a period called mini puberty. And we're learning a lot more about what the significance of testosterone action at that time is. But there are well-established effects of testosterone in utero, particularly in non-human animals. Uh, we have more indirect evidence in humans for obvious reasons because we can't manipulate the testosterone environment in humans just to see what happens and how it affects sex differences. So there's a lot of research into that area, but um, most of those organizational effects in humans we understand from this more indirect evidence, which I think we're going to talk about later. But the organizational effects are coordinated with the physical effects. So as testosterone is leading the development of the reproductive system, it is acting in the brain to masculinize behavior. And we see this very clearly in non-human animals. So if you look at the rodent literature, it's clear that as testosterone, I shouldn't say right at the same time, but in the uh, perinatal period, testosterone acts to masculinize behaviors, particularly clear is sexual behavior and aggressive behavior because even in rodents and of course many other animals, those are the two behaviors where we see fairly clear and distinct patterns of behavior between the sexes. That doesn't mean that there isn't overlap. There certainly is overlap, but it's much clearer on average in non-human animals than it is in humans. So we know that if you manipulate the early testosterone environment, you can basically create a feminized pattern of sexual or aggressive behavior. So in rats and some other animals, that would mean um, going from mounting to lordosis. Those are just clear cut sexual behaviors that are the product of uh, testosterone exposure. Actually, and we can talk about this more if you want, but it's actually testosterone converted into estrogen that acts prenatally in rats, in, uh, but not in humans. So it's actually androgens uh, seem to be most important in humans, but it's 
via estrogen that androgens have an effect on sexual behavior in rodents. And then also aggressive behavior is masculinized pre or perinatally, sort of shortly after birth by testosterone. And we can see that in, particularly in sex differences in rough and tumble play, which we also see across a range of species. And there's clear evidence that rough and tumble play is increased uh, by perinatal uh, androgen exposure. Mm-hmm. And sorry, and then I'll just say that the, do you want me to go into the activational effects? Um, so the idea is that the, the activation, the organizational activational model is the idea that there are these permanent effects on neural development and neural circuitry in the, that take place via testosterone in the perinatal period that act to masculinize the brain to promote male reproductive behaviors. And in um, puberty, when testosterone goes up, the idea then is that it's going to be acting on these previously masculinized structures. So that if you were to take a brain that had not been exposed to testosterone in utero or to male typical levels of testosterone in utero, and in adulthood then shoot a bunch of testosterone into it, it, that organism, that animal would not respond in a male typical way to those male levels of testosterone because the neural underpinnings would not be present. So the idea is that uh, male animals need to have testosterone exposure in utero and in puberty and adulthood in order to show male typical behavior. The one the nuance here is that we don't totally understand how this works and it seems as though there might be other really important organizational periods and that puberty might be one of those important periods where uh, the animal's environment plays a large role in um, influencing the relationship between testosterone and these neural changes and that some of those neural effects are permanent that occur in puberty. But um, activational effects just mean that as testosterone rises, it alter, it's the way that it uh, is most well-documented to work is to alter gene transcription. Uh, and these would be effects that are transient. So um, there can be effects on, uh, say, testosterone could upregulate dopamine but that would be in a certain environmental circumstance, but that would be a temporary effect. And then if testosterone went down uh, after some delay, those neural effects then would um, regress, I would say, or, or go back to where they were before the testosterone exposure. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, so when talking about the relationship between these organizational and activational effects of testosterone, for example, I mean, uh, it's the case that if we expose a female to the same levels of testosterone that a normal, a typical male has, it wouldn't have exactly the same effects because organizationally, her brain the, is not wired the same way. Perhaps the way the, uh, the different structures are organized is not the same. Perhaps the number of receptors is also not the same for testosterone and other hormones. And so that would be the reasons why that happens. 
So yes, until the number of receptors, that may be the case, but testosterone okay. and other hormones do upregulate or downregulate the transcription okay. of their own receptors. So I, I should just say, because I'm throwing these terms around, um, testosterone, progesterone, estrogen, those are all steroids. Steroids can act and primarily act as transcription factors, meaning they regulate the expression of various genes and the rate at which they, um, proteins are produced from those genes. So the hormone receptors are um, proteins and those are, can be regulated by the hormones themselves. So those uh, receptors are constantly recycled. It can be the case that organizational effects in utero do sort of set the stage for the concentration of various receptors, but I'm not sure that's very well understood right now. Mm -hmm. And how early in development can we already see the behavioral effects of testosterone in, in infants? So uh, this is a controversial area of research. And one reason it's controversial is that the measurement of assessing the level of testosterone to which a fetus is exposed is extremely challenging. And there are no super reliable methods. So we don't, I mean, it's invasive and you would have to get the testosterone level associated with the sensitive period that is relevant to the behavior you're looking at. So the way that hormones, um, these organizational effects work is that the right level of testosterone has to be present at the right time. And it is probably the case that sexual and aggressive and maybe even some cognitive or temperamental um, styles are affected by hormones in the brain, particularly androgens, at different uh, sensitive periods. And we don't really know exactly what those sensitive periods are. We know what the sensitive periods are for the internal and external genitalia. Um, just so with that caveat in mind, we do have some rough, uh, some data that, you know, points in a certain direction. So I think we're, we'll talk later about differences of sexual development. And we have some information from these uh, people who have these differences of androgen exposure in utero. And we can look at the evidence from these cases to see how these people uh, how their behavior is different from people who have typical levels of hormone exposure. So that's one way that I think is fairly reliable that we can look at the early effects of um, androgens in utero. But what we do have is some, some rough estimates of maternal levels of androgens. We have the 2D40 measurement, which I'm pretty sure your listeners would be familiar with the ratio between the second digit and the fourth digit, uh, that's supposed to be some very rough estimate of androgens. These are problematic measurements for, I think, various reasons, but they do suggest that higher levels of androgens in utero are related to the degree to which a infant will make eye contact. Um, this is uh, Simon Baron Cohen has done a lot of work here showing that there is an effect there appears to be a relationship between testosterone and eye contact. There are relationships between testosterone. First of all, boys have higher activity levels sort of across the board 
Uh, as far as I can tell, it's unclear. Um, it's it, these are not just the, these are not the most robust findings. We have robust sex differences uh, in a lot of these behaviors, like rough and tumble play. Even there's some experiments that claim that even mental rotation sex differences are apparent in infants, like five-month-old infants. Um, yeah, I'm sort of being hesitant here to ascribe any of these differences specifically to testosterone because I, I do think that the the measurement is somewhat problematic. We I think the better evidence is from girls with congenital adrenal hyperplasia who are exposed to higher than typical levels of androgens in utero and their uh, androgen levels tend to be normalized at birth if they're receiving medical care. And they, they do show the sort of expected pattern of behavior that is more masculinized. So the activity levels appear to be masculinized. The toy choices appear to be masculinized. The rough and tumble play is masculinized. And then there's other that sort of continues throughout life that the even career interests are masculinized sexual orientation is somewhat masculinized. Um, so that is the evidence that I think is, is uh, a little bit more robust. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we're going to go back to the, um, those kinds of sexual development conditions because it's very interesting, but later on in the interview. But when you study the sort of behavioral effects of testosterone, do you study levels of testosterone in isolate or do you also control for other hormones? Yeah, you can't really control for the other hormones and it's never working in isolation. Sure. And uh, I mean, that's a complicated area because there's a lot of research into the how the level of other hormones, particularly cortisol, might shape one's response to testosterone. There are so many other factors that are going to shape an individual's response to testosterone, no matter what age you're talking about. You know, one thing is the um, activity of the androgen receptor and um, the concentration of the androgen receptor and the concentration of sex hormone binding globulin, which is a protein that carries testosterone and other steroids uh, hormones around our bloodstream. So all of those things, including our environment and attitudes and personality and everything else affects uh, how we respond to testosterone, but also how our environment can influence testosterone level. So I think it's a good question. I'm not giving a super um, specific answer because it's always um, going to be important to take into account all the other factors that affect how testosterone works. I think cortisol is probably the most important one. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in terms of some of these factors, it's sort of a two-way street, right? Because, for example, personality might influence how you respond to certain levels of testosterone, but testosterone also influences how our personality develops, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, talking about animal models, because I guess this is a very important source of evidence for people who like to get into the... The, the kind of debate of nature versus nurture and the biological and sociological uh, origins of sex differences. Do we also... Do that? I guess they do. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, I mean, do we also find the same sorts or similar behavioral effects of testosterone in closely related species like other great apes? Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, we do. Do you want to be more specific? I mean, there's a lot of evidence across a lot of uh, different taxa and different species, and I could go anywhere with this. Okay, so maybe let's talk about chimpanzees because they are the most closely related to us, uh, also bonobos. So, but so it, let, let's focus on chimpanzees. Yeah, and then we can. I'd love to talk about the red deer, so maybe we can talk about them too. So we can talk about chimps. They are closely related to us, but I do also think birds are really important because males have paternal, show paternal investment. And that's a model, that is the human model. So apes are interesting and closely related to us genetically, but they have a, and they have a similar social system in many ways, but the fact that human mammals invest in their offspring really shapes the way that testosterone um, shapes behavior and uh, and male levels of aggression and mating competition and all that so but just at the most basic level it's clear that i mean so one really nice um connection between humans and chimps is the increase in testosterone that uh, male chimps experience when there is a uh, female who is in the uh, really fecund phase of her cycle when she's in estrus and she's able to conceive. So that's when she's in the um, she's a nice big sexual swelling, which is you know super sexually attractive to the males, and that is when their testosterone levels rise. So I love this because they're not a seasonally seasonally breeding animal. So in animals that breed seasonally, testosterone goes up and it just maps onto female fecundity, right? That is the point. And they will compete for mating opportunities in mating season, right? But chimps are interesting because they don't have that confined part of the season. They just respond to when females are in estrus. And what we see is that male testosterone levels rise and it seems that that facilitates male-male competition. And there is more aggression when the females are in estrus and testosterone goes up. And it's just very consistent with a huge amount of literature uh, on the challenge hypothesis, which we can talk about later. But that uh, seems to facilitate sort of attention to sexual and competitive cues and to respond to those in the way that works in the given environment. And we see all kinds of male animals have similar systems where testosterone goes up when females are fecund and it regulates sexual and aggressive behavior to coordinate it with the production of sperm and the ability to perform sexually. So it's just this one hormone, you know, in concert, of course, with other aspects of our physiology, but it coordinates all of these physical and behavioral um, traits that are necessary for male reproduction. So we see that in chimps, we see that in humans, and we see that in a whole bunch of other species. I just mentioned the birds because since the males are caring for their offspring, we also see that testosterone is depressed 
when the need for parental behavior is high because it high testosterone during that time would interfere with paternal care because males would be out attending to signals from other males and that's not the time to be doing that right uh, you mentioned red deer right that you also yeah. wanted to talk about so tell us about that so part of why i want to talk about it is because i uh for the book i went to scotland this is just the most thrilling trip for me because i had been teaching about the red deer for many years and a population of deer specifically on run that's been studied for, oh gosh, I don't want to get the date wrong, since the, I think, late 1950s. Um, and it's just, it's a long-term um, research project and there's behavioral and um, physiological data now and uh, genetic data and hormonal data. And it's stunning to me as someone who's interested in sex differences. It's just this beautiful illustration of how testosterone works. And the one thing I left out before is weaponry. Um, so the red deer live together in peaceful bachelor herds outside of mating season, right? So the mating season is called the rut and they live in these peaceful bachelor herds. They're not producing testosterone. They're not producing sperm testosterone is low and they're just chilling out. And what's amazing is when the females um, in the fall become fecund then and, and go into estrus, the males uh, go through this period where testosterone is rising, rising, rising. They're growing their weapons on their head, which they had shed after the, the previous rut. These weapons that they're trying to use to really injure or even kill each other. These huge, beautiful, sharp antlers. So they grow in muscle mass, they grow their antlers, they become highly aggressive and territorial and sexual and their libido goes up and the sperm goes up and it's testosterone that coordinates all of these things. And you can just see it on this cyclical basis where in humans, you don't see the effects of testosterone because you guys are just jacked up all the time, basically. So you can't see, you know, females have, we have our cycles, right? And people are always complaining about that. You guys are just permanently teed up, right? So what's cool about species like the red deer is you can see this is what it does. This is how it would be if you didn't have testosterone, you'd be living in peaceful bachelor herds or something, or, you know, having your family and kids. Um, so I just wanted to talk about that because I went to the island um, of Rum to see them for myself. And it was just amazing to see the males with their harems, these big successful males, the way that they acquire their mates is through aggressive competition. And it's very ritualized. They go through all of these steps to competition and kind of sussing each other out to determine whether another male is going to be uh, a threat to them or whether they might be able to win a specific fight. So they're analyzing the roars. They're kind of trying to determine how big they are, how strong they are, if they're tired, if they're well-fed, um, and making decisions about whether it's worth it to go into battle over females. And it's all testosterone that's just coordinating, coordinating these physical and behavioral traits um, so clearly. So I can't even remember why I'm telling you that story, but hopefully it's helpful. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, sure. But by the way, t tell us more about the challenge hypothesis and uh, what can we learn about the workings of testosterone through that lens? Yeah, so it's a, just an exciting, I get to, I'm getting, I, I'm not supposed to announce when I'm getting emotional, um, but I am. And uh, because it's such a, this just excites me. I, I think the challenge hypothesis is such a beautiful um, framework to understand male reproductive behavior and how testosterone works within that. And it was developed by uh, John Wingfield, who uh, studied birds, and which is funny because his name Wingfield. Um, and what he initially found was that testosterone doesn't just cause aggression. It is a mistake to think of hormones as causing behavior in just this um, sort of one directional way and in a vacuum. That's just not how it works. Hormones change the thresholds for various behaviors given the environmental circumstances. So if you have high testosterone, your thre threshold for an aggressive uh, reaction might be pretty low. But if you're female and you have low testosterone, that threshold might be much higher. So it doesn't mean you're not capable of the behavior. It's just changing kind of the bar to certain behaviors. So the challenge hypothesis that Wingfield initially articulated shows the ways in which that, first of all, what I've described before about how testosterone levels can change given the environment. So if there are fertile fer females in the environment, or it's springtime, daylight uh, exposure is lengthened. These environmental stimuli impact testosterone in ways that promote male reproduction. And a key here is that testosterone should be low when you don't really need it for male-male competition or uh, for sex, basically. And you don't need it for, and you don't really need to be super competitive if sex is just not on the horizon. Um, however, and I should just say uh, as a caveat, in, in like chimpanzees, even when there are no fertile females, competing for status will, in, will um, affect the chances of gaining a mate in the future. So status competition is regulated to some degree by testosterone, even when there are no fertile females present. But if you're a bird or a deer and it's not mating season, you don't need to compete for status. You're going to work out status in the spring. Uh, so the testicles are basically shut down. No sperm, no testosterone, drab coloration, singing patterns change, no sex, and much more peace. And then in the mating season, uh, usually you know around here anyway in, in the spring, when you get these signals from the environment, basically other males um, around and the need to compete for territory with other males, testosterone goes up. And once the male is paired up with a female, then testosterone levels tend to be depressed a bit. Um, so once the, the idea is that testosterone levels will be highest when the need to establish dominance hierarchies and territory is being worked out. So testosterone is gonna rise above some minimal baseline breeding threshold, like let's get sperm online and let's get the coloration and secondary sex characteristics going. So that takes some sort of baseline level of testosterone. But then um, the 
aggressive stimuli or threats from other males are going to cause testosterone to go up even more because now basically sex is on the line, mating is on the line. It has to be worked out. The rights to that have to be worked out via male-male competition. Once that's worked out, it's adaptive for everybody to reduce testosterone because high testosterone has costs. And that's part of the challenge hypothesis is that testosterone can be pretty low to maintain basic, basic reproductive functions, but then it's going to, it's adaptive for it to respond to uh, threatening stimuli, say, in the environment as necessary so that testosterone levels will rise as necessary. And, and uh, in the breeding birds, it will go back up when the female becomes fecund again because the male will have to make guard the female. And say um, an intruder is placed into the territory, then testosterone can really spike up. So it's this demonstration of how testosterone can promote aggression. So male typical levels of testosterone will bias an animal to, to respond aggressively to other males, right? But then certain um, other kinds of aggressive stimuli as needed will also cause an increase in testosterone, which can further promote and maintain an aggressive response. And then when the need to um, stop aggressing with other males and pay attention to your kids, arises, then testosterone is depressed. And we see that in humans and non-human primates and birds also, which may have uh, parental, sorry, I shouldn't say non-human primates. We see that the testosterone is depressed in um, male animals that have paternal care. So in humans um, and in lots of birds, which is really amazing to watch if you ever have the opportunity to watch a nest and the male and female at the nest. It's incredible how hard the male is working. Um, and again, again, you know, if you increase his testosterone, he neglects his kids and they die. So that's not reproductively beneficial to have high testosterone at all times. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, levels of testosterone also respond to one's uh, relationship status and also fatherhood status. I mean, when men are in a committed relationship and they have kids, levels of testosterone drop. Yeah, so what's important there is, again, it's the environmental stimuli. So with the birds, the, the male bird can see and hear those kids, and that's going to trigger a certain kind of response. But if he, so in humans, uh, this has even been shown in different cultures where it's not just being a dad, it's interacting with the kids and being around the um, stimuli of your children, but especially young children, um, that's a pretty consistent finding that there is then a suppression of testosterone in males. But if you just are a father and don't interact much with your kids, then there seems to be no impact on testosterone. Mm -hmm. Does testosterone also have any influence in terms of mating strategies? I mean, if you prefer short-term versus long-term relationships, uh, casual sex and things like that. So that is an interesting question. And what you're asking about is very, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you're asking about variation in male testosterone and whether you could predict whether a guy is going to be a stud, uh, competitive, kind of bad boy, and try to have as many sexual partners as possible, which is one strategy. And then maybe the lower testosterone guy is the, I've had boyfriends of both types. Um, 
seriously, like one, the nicest guy in the world, totally devoted. Um, and then I'm a, oh, I, well, whatever, maybe they'll figure out who they are. Um, and then another one who um, was not like that, but an interesting person. Um, so, <laughs> but you know, I think most women know what I'm talking about, right? There are different types and that bad boy can be very attractive, right? So that's a whole, that's for David Buss or something. Um, so there are definitely different strategies and people expect the bad boy strategy to be a high testosterone one. And I am do, do not see the evidence for that. It may be there, I don't see it, but I also want to make the point that neither strategy is definitely more, is more, necessarily more successful. The, the bad boy strategy is a high risk strategy. How many kids will you have over a lifetime using that, the bad boy strategy? And plus, what are you risking? I mean, that seems exhausting, right? A lot of competition, um, a lack of paternal investment, having to win the, I'm not, I'm, it's not that females are passive here, but having to win the mating rights with um, various women, having to accumulate resources to attract the women, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then you could have one guy who has the whole reproductive career of one woman and invests in all his offspring. So you can't necessarily conclude that, that the bad boys, the high testosterone, supposedly high testosterone, bad boy strategy is the more successful one. But you might think, if you think it's a high testosterone strategy, I think the you know inference would be that it is more successful. So the, um, that's a long way of saying, I think, for me to just talk because I don't know <laughs> the answer. And I don't, and I also, uh, there's so, people expect men with high testosterone to be more sexual, more aggressive, more this, more that, more dominant. We just don't always see that in humans. What I think is really important is the sex difference in testosterone and being above the typical being over the male threshold or at the male threshold for the level of testosterone. And then you get a huge amount of variation um, in behavior that's not necessarily associated with like individual differences in male testosterone level. What you do see is you have a female level, you're going to be pretty different on average than people who are at the male level. So, but people want to find individual differences within men, but it's unclear that those individual differences are super important, at least in terms of how we measure testosterone, unless you measure all this other stuff like receptor density, the CAG repeat, um, personal history, dominance orientation. Maybe once you figure out what all the other things are, then we're going to be able to, you know, nail these individual differences and see how they're associated to these mass, typically masculine traits. Mm -hmm. uh, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it the case that when it comes to status competition in human males, the kinds of behavior testosterone correlates with depends on the social context? I mean, it's not always the case that higher levels of testosterone cause or correlate with aggressive behavior, but oh, it, yeah. cor it correlates with the kinds of behavior that increases your status, right? Okay, so it seems that male typical levels of testosterone promote, behave, promote status-seeking behaviors. Right. Um, but you said something else that I wanted to 
respond to. And now, um, just repeat what you just said. Uh, well, well, I was basically saying that, okay, we have this idea that testosterone correlates with aggressive behavior when it yeah. comes to yeah, status. Okay. Um, yeah. So the aggression piece, there's just, it's just not clear cut, right? That mm -hmm. if you measure somebody's baseline testosterone, which is maybe what they woke up with, you know, you can, there are a million different ways you can measure it in different times of day that that would then predict someone's aggressive behavior. Plus, what does that even mean? What does it mean for a man in like Cambridge to be aggressive? Well, no, nobody's really getting in a bar fight in Cambridge as far as I know. I mean, I'm sure it's happening. Sorry, I'm sure there are bar fights in Cambridge. But probably not the people in my social circle. So I don't know, maybe they are. Um, so what do we mean by aggressive? You know, we have plenty of examples of male aggression, right? Um, it's, we read about it in the news all the time. There is, there's just no clear evidence that these are like the crazy high testosterone males. There's other kinds of aggression, and we try to measure that, and people try to measure that in the lab, like how much, how many drops of hot sauce are you going to put in somebody's water or whatever. So the research here is difficult, right? Um, but the point I wanted to make is that I, what I do think is important is the changes in testosterone in uh, social interactions, so that if there's if men are competing. Uh, how do we see their testosterone change in the face of competition? And then what happens if we have what we'll just call as a win or a loss? Like we can obviously measure that clearly in sports, but socially when men are competing um, for status, there's all kinds of winning and losing happening all over the place. And so I think what's most interesting is to look at how testosterone is motivating that behavior and then reinforcing that behavior maybe by uh, its effect on dopamine. So I think there's a really interesting body of research there in terms of sex and aggression and testosterone and these shorter term changes that are gonna condition future behavior so that it's most adaptive based on history. Like if you're gonna be a loser and just get your ass kicked either psychologically or physically, uh, you know, in terms of status, you probably shouldn't be confronting everybody and picking fights. Uh, you should kind of back off in the face of competition. So I think that testosterone changes in the face of competition are really important and probably more important in predicting how men will react to certain environmental stimuli than just baseline testosterone. Mm -hmm. I hope this makes for a good segue, but what can we learn by, by studying castrated men? What kind? Oh, castrated. A castrated, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure what this, you're gonna, I'm going to force you to make a segue. Because that, that wasn't a segue. <laughs> you're going to go from the challenge hypothesis to castration. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, because we were talking about <laughs> levels of testosterone and their effects, and I mean, people who no longer have their testicles. I mean, what happens there? Yeah. So you're saying, well, wait a minute. Do people without their testicles still have similar kinds of social responses? Or are they mass? Are they masculine? Are they? Do they have these masculine, typical masculine behaviors in social situations? Yeah. Is that what you're asking? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, so there's castration actually 
removing the testicles. And then there's people who have uh, hypogonadism, who have conditions where they're not producing high levels of testosterone. That can come on in adulthood. People can be born with that, so they didn't have the masculinizing effects of testosterone in utero. There's also people who are undergoing medical treatment where they have their testosterone shut down. There are also transgender people who are um, shutting down their testosterone production. And there's evidence from all of these different cases about uh, how behavior and the body change. So again, this is like a big world of information and I could go to any of those places. What do you think is most interesting in there? Okay, so let's perhaps go into the sexual development conditions, like, for example, congenital adrenal hyperplasia and uh, androgen insensitivity syndrome. I, I hope I'm saying that right. So, okay, so what, what can we learn about testosterone by studying those conditions? Okay, so just since we were on castration, it's complete androgen sensitivity syndrome is sort of relevant in an ironic way. Um, so complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, CAIS, is a condition in, with a, in which a person who has XY sex chromosomes and testes um, in early development, so starts going down the typical male path, produces testosterone, and they have XY sex chromosomes, don't forget, in every single cell, because that's how our chromosomes work. The same ones are present in every single cell. So if you're female, you have XX ones in every single cell. Um, so these people, it's a very rare um, difference or variation, as some people call it. And these people are do not have the ability to respond to testosterone. Their bodies are insensitive to it. Their androgen receptors, uh, that gene that codes for their androgen receptor, which happens to be on the X chromosome, has a mutation. There's varying um, kinds of mutations. There's different levels of severity of the mutation. There can be complete inactivation of the androgen receptor, or there can be partial inactivation of the androgen receptor. So you have the spectrum of testosterone action in these um, individuals. So in complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, you have XY sex chromosomes, testes, but the testes never descend. They stay in the abdomen because androgen action is necessary for testicular descent um, prior to birth. And also the body fails, to, I don't wanna say fails, uh, the body develops Physically, the external genitalia are feminine. There's a vagina that does not connect to a uterus because you need testosterone to masculinize the external genitalia in utero. So these individuals appear 100% female. In fact, more female than a typical female because they have zero androgen action. Um, and they develop, you know, they're typically sexed as girls and develop as girls and have normal girlhoods. Um, but I just connected this to the castration thing because these are people who have XY sex chromosomes and testes, but zero testosterone action from the get go. And they're just, there's no evidence that they're masculinized in any way. And there's a bunch of cases that have been studied and these are typ very typically feminine females who go through a feminizing puberty 
that is because testosterone is converted into estrogen in all of us. And in these people, their body can respond to estrogen because there's nothing wrong with their estrogen receptors. They just don't get their period for obvious reasons. They don't have ovaries and they don't have a uterus. And um, what's interesting is that we can see that it's not the sex chromosomes that are responsible for the for sex differences overall because these people have xy sex chromosomes what they don't have is testosterone and you just see a very different kind of person a feminine person and it does, again i'm not saying there are these two types and that everybody all male people are this way and all female people are that way it's just it's on average we see these differences and they have very typical feminine interests um so that's what it's like for an xy person with testes to develop without testosterone. You don't see high rates of you know, rough and tumble play or masculine career interests, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So this might be a complicated question, but how is sex determined then? Is it by sex chromosomes, by hormones, by sexual characteristics, by uh, behavioral patterns? When you say sex determined, do you mean how do we define sex or what causes us to develop those characteristics? Uh, how do we define sex? Gametes. So you can, because you can have uh, a person with XX sex chromosomes, say, who had a translocation of the SRY gene from the Y chromosome, right? So that person, um, if they have the SRY gene, they're undifferentiated gonads early in development around six, seven weeks are going to develop as testes uh, rather than ovaries, even though they have XX sex chromosomes. So that person's gonna be male. So even though they have XX sex chromosomes, that doesn't define sex. What defines sex is the plan for the production of gametes. Are they small immobile gametes or are they large immobile gametes? otherwise known as sperm or eggs. That's it. All this other stuff goes, is associated with sex, does not define sex, does not cause sex. So the person who has SRY translocation will be a male because they're developing the body plan to produce sperm. And uh, even if, you know, so it's not like having a vagina or having breasts or having testosterone that causes sex, but those things are associated with sex and something like testosterone is, you know, you could see from the case of CAIS without testosterone, you're going to have a feminine phenotype. Um, yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah, but let, let me just ask you then, so with all of this in mind, does this give us any new insights into how we should understand gender identity? Uh, what's gender identity? Yeah, <laughs> that's another good question, but... Uh, You're around. You have to define it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't... Okay. Yeah, so now, now I'm in the pickle. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but, but okay, so... I want to see a little Ricardo pickle. That came out wrong. Can you just cut that part? Yeah. No, no. Uh, okay, so... Uh, I guess the... 
I think I know what you're trying, I'll bail you out here. I think what you're, yeah. you want to know is how does sex and hormones relate to how we feel about ourselves as male or female, something like that? Right, yeah. And how, and how people identify themselves as male or female. I mean, yeah. the, sec, the sex they identify with. Yeah, so I, I, I was teasing you a little bit because I think the concept of gender identity is, is just vague and complicated and... Yeah, I, that's also why I didn't have a straightforward answer. Yeah, because so. there, there isn't one. I don't think there is one. Um, but I know, so it's hard to have a discussion about it because I don't think there's a really good definition of what people mean by gender identity. I think, so, yeah, I'm hesitant to um, go there. But what I could talk about is gender typical behavior. Okay. Um, so, because sometimes people who don't have gender typical behavior, they think I'm in the wrong body, right? They might feel as though they're in the wrong body or that they're supposed to be the other sex and how you feel about your sexed body. I think that's something like gender identity. Um, but I don't know that there's a nugget in the brain for gender identity, but I do think there are lots of different nuggets that shape um, how we, the sex that we feel comfortable with or comfortable, you know, um, or that we identify with, like we want to play the games that boys are playing or to dress like the boys or feel more like what they're doing, uh, maybe than what, uh, your own actual sex is doing. And so I think you're asking how do sex hormones shape? Like the only question I could really answer is how sex hormones shape um, gendered interests and behavior, because I don't think there's really good research on what is referred to as gender identity. The best research is from, again, from congenital adrenal hyperplasia, that girls who have higher than average exposure to androgens in utero tend to have more masculine interests um, and prefer rough and tumble play again in more male typical say career preferences like working with things over people um, and among their higher rates although still very very low of um, a masculine identity in females with CAH um, and higher rates of uh, homosexual orientation mm -hmm. right so uh, I mean, there's another topic that you touched a little bit, a little bit on the book, but you don't get too much into it, and you avoid uh, making any normative uh, or bringing up any normative questions surrounding it. But when it comes to testosterone, the role it plays in the body, and uh, how it influences uh, performance in sports. Yeah. So, yeah. Do, uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that uh, with the knowledge that we have, we can answer complicated questions like, for example, if transgender people should compete in the sports of the sex they identify with or not? Right. right. So the question really concerns whether trans girls and trans women should be allowed to compete against, I'll just say, natal females, people who are born female. Um, the, the crucial, so no, the science cannot answer the question, but I, the science is clear 
in that people who have gone through male puberty on average have an athletic advantage over people who have not gone through a male puberty. That doesn't mean that someone who did not go through a male puberty cannot beat someone who did go through a male puberty. So this again is just completely on average, but male puberty confers, you know, men are bigger and stronger than women on average. And it is because of testosterone and its actions that begin at puberty, which cause uh, increase in bone mass. So bones are, are stronger and you cannot undo that. The uh, bones grow to a greater length. So males tend to be taller than females. So right off the bat, you have stronger bones and taller height, which tend that combination right there tends to bring some athletic advantages. You also have a massive increase in muscle mass. So the, the larger uh, muscle mass pulls on those bones, put exerts um, pressure on those bones as they're developing, which causes them to be the min mineralization of those bones to increase and they're stronger, um, lower fat mass, increased hemoglobin, and all of that makes males more powerful. So the more power a sport requires, the larger the male advantage. So on average, there's about a 10% advantage among males. And the question is, um, and so at the elite level, everybody's really working incredibly hard and training as hard as they can, right, to compete. So I think the elite level may be different from the high school level, which is different from the casual athlete. So I think you're going to have a more consistent advantage of um, trans girls over or trans women over natal women because you're at the elite uh, at the elite level. That's my intuition there. Um, but the so one issue is the laws that govern what's going on in high school sports and whether trans girls who may be in or have have already gone through puberty. So these are natal males who are um, identifying and competing as females. Um, whether it so they may or may not have uh, lowered their testosterone level. So if they have not lowered their testosterone level, then they have a, a massive advantage. You know, they'll have the 10% or more uh, advantage on average. If say at the elite level, um, if there is a requirement to reduce testosterone levels um, significantly to be much closer to the female level, to the natal female level, uh, the evidence is very clear that the physical advantage does not go away. So first of all, you retain the bone strength and the height, but you also, um, as we know, um, sorry, I hope I didn't conflate something there. Um, so the, sorry, there's D, there's DSDs and there's also the, the transgender issue. And I hope I didn't just conflate that at the elite level with the requirement to reduce, but the, if a um, trans female reduces her testosterone, the um, advantage is still, there is an advantage that is still retained. So hemoglobin will go down to uh, female levels. So that's a, that's a big change. Uh, so that advantage is lost and, and higher hemoglobin um, increases lung capacity and, and oxygen to working muscles. So that's important for power sports. So that advantage is lost. But the 
uh, muscle mass does not um, reduce completely, even if testosterone is basically blocked. So there's still, on average, there is uh, greater muscle volume, there's greater height, there's greater bone density. Um, I'm trying to think of what other advantages. Those are the main advantages so that there are physical advantages that would tend to favor um, trans women on average. But then you have this whole, so that's the sort of science of it, but I don't think that answers the question. There's, I think and there's a really big need for people to, especially at the high school level, consider the rights to, you know, to seriously consider the rights of these trans girls and how we're going to handle the situation. I think people are so hung up talking about the science that they're really getting into these arguments that are sort of hostile instead of ha feeling compassion and empathy or just for these girls who, what are we going to do? You know, they want to, um, they're identifying as female. They just want to live their lives as female. They want to do their sport. And I feel for them, and I don't think it, the answer is so easy. And I think that we should hear from those girls. We should hear from their families. We should take all of the information into account here, including the science. I just don't think we should get so hung up on the science and pretend that the testosterone doesn't matter, because it does makes a difference. Um, but I think the disc I don't think that answers the question. So I actually don't have an opinion. I don't know what to do. I think it's incredibly complicated. I don't have an opinion on the matter. I do have an opinion on the science. I don't on the ethical issue or how to solve the problem. People are suggesting a third league and that seems difficult. So I don't know that there is a good answer. Yeah, but even before, for example, male to female transsexuals transition and go through hormone therapy and alter their levels of testosterone and have some body modifications, I mean, because they are transsexual, could it be that uh, initially their levels of testosterone weren't as high as their as the, the sex they are, they were born in. No, there's okay. just no evidence for that. So there's no evidence. Um, the testosterone levels appear to be totally normal. Okay. Um, yeah. But even if they were a little bit lower, um, they've still gone through, you know, male puberty, but, but there could be a question about what to, you know, what if uh, a, a trans um, girl had not gone through male puberty, because that's becoming more and more common that people are taking puberty blockers and going through mm -hmm. something like the opposite sex puberty. So that would raise a whole other set of issues um, that be, you know, more kind of interesting, at least from a scientific point of view. Um, would there still be any kind of advantage there due to like, prenatal exposure to tea or, you know, so maybe that would be completely fine to have those trans girls participate in female sports. But do you think that that feminist uh, concept of toxic masculinity could have some, I mean, some, uh, that it could be useful in any way? <laughs> 
Um, well, I guess the idea is that there, you know, that if raping and murdering and sexual assault and the patriarchy is are products of masculinity that are keeping women down, then that's toxic and that's toxic masculinity. So no, I guess I don't think calling it toxic helps because then I think men get the idea that just being male and being masculine is bad and wrong. And I think that could have the opposite of the intended effect, which is increasing anger and hostility and um, little boys. I have a boy, he's 12, he's getting, he gets that, he gets that toxic, what toxic masculinity is supposed to be. Um, that's not healthy. So I think it's great, it's important to have positive role models of, of men who are, you know, loving, dads and very emotionally expressive and promoting feminist ideals. Um, I think that's all really important. I, yeah, I guess I am, I'm having trouble seeing how the idea of toxic masculinity is helpful. I think toxic femininity would not be helpful either, but there's certainly less than ideal traits associated with femini femininity too. Um, and we don't have toxic femininity. Do we? It might be a thing that I just don't know about. Um, I don't think labeling a, you know, being masculine or feminine as toxic. Yeah, I don't think that's helpful. Sorry, that wasn't a super clear answer. I guess I haven't thought about. Well, that. I mean, toxic femininity, perhaps you would find something like that in men going their own way groups or something like that, or, or in cell groups. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I don't yeah. think. I take the terminology from the incel. Uh, no, no. <laughs> let's avoid that. Okay, so uh, just one last question. Do you, do you find it difficult to communicate this kind of science without people immediately trying to politicize it or misunderstanding it or not? Yeah, so I guess I find it difficult to communicate some things. I don't think I did a good job communicating how I feel about toxic masculinity, but yeah, and part of part of it is that it is so sensitive and I have to be careful and I haven't perfectly worked out my thoughts and that's um, people, because I think of social media, it's easy to punish people for sentences or they said or words they used even, you know, out of context and people seem very eager to do that. Um, I probably should find it more difficult than I do. <laughs> Um, because maybe I, you know, I would be more cautious, but I also think people should be able to speak freely about how they feel and have conversations. And that's what we need is to have open dialogue. That's how we're going to get where we want to go is through having ideas challenged. And that's what you're doing, which is great. Um, so maybe it'll get more difficult. The, the book isn't, uh, out quite yet and, uh, we'll see what happens, but I wish that, people would just be really open to hearing and challenging people's views without judging them as human beings or ju judging them morally or calling them out on social media. 
Yeah, and I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think that just by communicating the science, you're not aligning with any kind of political or moral ideology, right? I really, that is how I feel. I feel like that's my job. That's what I'm interested in. That's what I know. Um, I think when you do have a strong moral agenda and that does get, um, it does kind of muddle up the science because it, the temptation is to try to get the science to suit your political or social or, or moral agenda. And I, you know, reality is reality and it's not going to change based on what you want it to be. So I think we just need to figure out how reality works. That's what's interesting and that's what's powerful. Yeah. Okay, so let's end on that note. The book is again T, the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. There it is. <laughs> okay, so Carol, just before we go, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, I don't have a huge internet um, presence. I do have a Twitter handle, which is at Hoovlet. Um, uh, yeah, I got to get a website or something going. Um, so maybe I will and just Google me. Okay, great. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. For having me. It's been a pleasure. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. Please do not forget to support the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. So you have links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. For even just $1 per month, you can support the show and get access to all the goodies I have to for you in Patreon. Uh, and you also have links to PayPal, of course. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzkan, Blanchett Perlger, Larson, Lauguerero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Erika Lenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuburger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Sandrubano, Simon Colombo, George Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Kusson, Evan Bodrink, Wal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, JW, João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraujo, Eden Solon, Roman Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stefiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegnam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, 
and Nirvan Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.